Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Yes, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show, where we have a pretty simple goal, and that's to make you rich. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul? I'm great. Peter, how are you? Good. You know, Maura and I were talking about you on the weekend, and we thought, you know, what is the tag that you should get? Because I get money, man, and we decided that the best name for you would be the technical guru. How's that? Can you, can you live with that? Look, that's pretty, uh, a very glamorous title, <laughs> you know, I think that's probably the most... Flattering thing I've ever been called. But yeah, well, look, I can live with anything. You know? Well, yeah, everyone needs a technical guru. Like, it's all very well someone actually thinking he knows the right answer like I do. But it's good to have someone who actually can check it out and make sure that the technicals coincide with the very informed views that I often have. I thought you were going to call me something a bit more sort of the superhuman sort of status <laughs> no. I am. Oh, I, I, this show is not a show of exaggeration, Paul. Right, well, let's move on back onto finance. We'll stay on topic today, Peter. Okay, on today's show, we'll find out who did it tougher. Was it the baby boomers who had low house prices and 17% home loan interest rates in the 1980s, or today's home buyers who face very high prices but unbelievably low interest rates? That would be Sally Tyndall from Rate City will come on. They've done the hard work on this and, and who are you punting on, Peter? Uh, I'm punting on the fact that, uh, given the fact that I lived through that uh, period, I reckon we did it harder. But I know, I know, for example, the guys at the Grattan Institute, they've suggested that maybe we didn't do it as hard. So I'm going to be very interested to see what Rate City has come up with. And then we have Tim Lawless, who's head of research at CoreLogic, and these guys check out house prices around the mm-hmm. country. I want to know, how bad are the house prices right now? And how bad do they think it will be? Because that's going to be a very important um, economic um, factor affecting the way this this country and this economy of ours goes over the next few years. Yeah, I know just from anecdote, Peter, talking to a couple of people on the weekend who both had their properties on the market Mm. and... uh, they both had their, their properties on the market now for some weeks, and in one case, not a single offer, and in the other case, just one offer and well away from what they're asking. So, look, I, I guess it, uh, we, we all know markets are cyclical. It just yeah. like, uh, you know, I remember writing articles more than five years ago saying how this property market had some way to go. Hmm. Uh, what we've seen in the past is when the market uh, turns down, it stays down for some time, and often the statistics don't quite exactly tell you what the real estate is just the way that uh, obviously discouraged uh, sellers stop and pull out of the market so um, look I think it's a bit tougher than people are making out at the moment Mm. that's what the anecdote I'm hearing but Not well, showing up that bad in some of the, in the numbers. The numbers quite no. small. That's why I wanted Tim to give us a, an idea. I must admit, I always use when I see auction signs become for sale, mm. you know the market's slowing down. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the clearance rates per se don't mean a lot, except that what we do know is that when there are more buyers and sellers, things tend to sell quickly. Yeah. And when there aren't as many buyers or sellers or the buyers aren't as keen, you know, things don't get sold. And that's mm. what the clearance rate tells us. It just mm. tells us the propensity of the buyers to come up and meet, meet the price or not. And uh, 
I think the national figures are in the low 50s uh, for the weekend. Now, it wasn't so long ago we were in the 80s. 80s. So, that was yeah, unbelievable, it's, it's, wasn't it? Uh, it does, is a sign of the times. And, and as you say, Peter, it does have a potential bit of a wealth effect. So we could actually see down the track, I'm not wanting to get too bearish here, but some flow-ons into both retail sales and maybe even to the poor old share mm. market. So mm. worthwhile keeping an eye on the property yeah. market. Without a doubt. Okay, let's kick off with our first guest. That's Sally Tyndall from Rate City. Sally, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Sally, this has been a subject that's been near and dear to my heart because I suffered through the 1980s with those high interest rates. And I must admit the price of my home was nice and low. But it, it was extraordinarily hard during that period. And I have seen some people, young people, young journalists writing in newspapers trying to suggest that we actually didn't do it all that badly compared to the poor old buyers of today who will pay high prices. <laughs> now, you guys have tried to compare the two periods. So what did you find? Look, that's right. We decided to compare the uh, average mortgage from 1990 to 2018 against the average interest rate and the average salary that people were getting. So in 1990, we found that people were paying a huge interest rate, the highest on record at 17%. But their loan size was uh, a meagre, I think I can say, $68,000. Also, their salary was $27,000 a year. And that worked out to be 42% of um, someone's salary spent on the mortgage. Fast forward to 2018, where interest rates are at record lows and the average from the big banks is around 4.5. The loan size is high at 388 and a lot higher for people living in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, annual salary is around the 80k mark. And when you put that into a percentage, it turns out that people are spending 29% of their salary on their mortgage. So if you look at those stats, it says that it was tougher in 1990 than it is today. Uh, the difference, I think, is that people that bought property in 1990 have experienced such huge growth in that time. So while it was tough for a number of years, it's really paid off. And I don't think we'll ever see uh, that kind of growth in the near future for any millennial getting to the house market at average prices of $1 million. Yeah, I, I guess the point is that the size of the loan is important, Paul, here, isn't it? Because it's gone from, what, 68K to, was it 380K, um, Sally? 388K, and mm. that's a national average of mm. loan size. Yeah, so if someone's got like a bigger loan, like in Sydney and Melbourne, a lot of people would double that. That would probably bring the, the equation up a lot closer, wouldn't it? It certainly would, uh, because in Sydney and Melbourne, you're looking at a starting price for houses of in Sydney, $1.15 million is the median house price. And in Melbourne, it's $915,000 to get yourself a house with a backyard. Mm. Uh, so you're really looking at far higher numbers than the national averages in those two capital cities. Mm. Yes, Sally, one other point, it's um, Paul Ricard here. I guess that the it's really interesting data, and so on the face of it, um, look, the uh, 1980s look a little harder. But I guess what I hear from a lot of um, potential homeowners today is the deposit gap, 
and they've still got to find that 20% and perhaps the banks are perhaps a little bit tougher. I'm not necessarily saying they're tougher than they were in the 80s, but they're certainly tougher than they were in the, the first part of this century. It, the deposit gap, do you get a sense whether it's easier or harder for people to uh, get even get in a position to, to get that first loan? I think it's much harder these days, uh, Paul. I think uh, when you're looking at deposits of, um, you know, uh, $230,000 in Sydney to get yourself a deposit for a house, uh, that's a huge amount to save up on a salary of 80000 or probably less if you're a first home buyer. Uh, we crunched some numbers recently. Uh, if you were chipping away and putting $500 a week, Mm-hmm. into some sort of high-interest savings account to save up for a deposit. For a Sydney house, that would take you seven years and 11 months. Right, okay. That's a, that's a lifetime at home with mum and dad. Um, in Melbourne, it's not much better. It, for a house, it's going to take you six years and five months to get that deposit. Uh, these are unrealistic timeframes and figures for a lot of first-home buyers. But Sally, wouldn't you think that a lot of the home buyers are actually couples, so we can double that income from 80K to 160K, and so that would possibly bring it down to three and a half years, or did you work on on couples' incomes? Uh, that $500 a week was an amount, so you could be saving, together you could be saving $500 each, and yes, that would halve. Yeah. Um, and that's the big change that we've seen across the generations is that previously uh, people were buying houses on one income. Uh, You know, uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, people were buying houses on two incomes. Now what we're seeing in our research is that people are needing three incomes to get into their first home because they have to knock on the door of mum and dad and ask for a loan from them as well to top up the deposit that they've saved. Mm. You know, it's funny, uh, being someone who who doesn't like to think that the the younger generation is doing it tougher than us because it was hard in the 1980s when interest rates got to 17%. One thing I I, I have actually thought about, and I know you you wouldn't have done this research, but you might have, is that I think a lot more couples in those days were single-income couples. And so when interest rates went up, it was a really big slug. Now, nowadays, we have double-income couples. Sure, they've got much bigger child-minding expenses, but I think they would have more of a buffer in terms of their income than the couples of the 1980s. What do you reckon, Paul? You remember the 1980s? You know, I'm stretching here, Peter. I've got to, uh, I've got to clear away a few grey cells to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, I think the deposit issue is, is a big one, and so in mm. some ways, um, notwithstanding Sally's data, I think she acknowledges that it is a probably a, better, a bigger challenge today to get that set than it was uh, 30 years ago. The other thing I remember about the 80s, of course, is when we got to that um, 17%, I think that was right at the start of, it was March or January of, of, of 1990. Hmm. Uh, of course, a lot of people, um, home loans were still regulated, yeah. and that was the maximum rate. In fact, in some states, I think they only got to 16 to three quarter percent in Victoria because it was a regulation down there. But... Uh, so-called fixed-rate loans were actually quite popular, and a lot of people switched into fixed-rate loans, and they paid 13.5% for five years, and they couldn't work out how lucky they were. Yeah. It, was, it was really the first time that that um, switching to a fixed-rate loan became very, very popular in that uh, yeah. in the start of the 90s. So but, I, I remember that part. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, well, did you have a home loan then, or were you too young and well? I and did, but I had paid it off, Peter. I think so. Oh, I, I can't ever remember paying seventeen percent, but I do remember <laughs> it happened so quickly. Yeah. And uh, of course, it was the recession we had to have. Yeah. Um, and it sort of came from nowhere, and it was over. And some quickly. lucky people were on thirteen point five percent fixed rate, or was it twelve point five? Yeah, there were some fixed rates, as I said, and also some other regulated no, rates. rates. So yeah. not not everyone paid the seventeen percent, no. but certainly a new couple coming in mm. um, would have paid. And, and banks were still rationing loans in those days, so yeah. it was actually hard to. That's the other big change between now and then is that once upon a time, you know, home loans was tightly rationed. Mm. And uh, you had to uh, be with the bank and you had to be nice to the bank manager and he or she looked at you and, you know, you uh, you sort of went there for an interview and, as you recall, Peter, and yeah. you either passed the muster or you didn't. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, people are falling over to give you the money, although maybe with the Royal Commission that's about to change again. So yeah, it's, it's, it's worth reflecting on just what it was like uh, almost 30 years ago today. Yeah. Hey, Sally, have you had any reaction from young people um, as a consequence of your analysis, <laughs> I've had I've had more of a reaction from older people. I have to say, yeah. um, it's quite funny. Uh, I actually did a, an interview with um, a Perth radio station this morning, who had a lot of older callers saying it was much harder in their day. Um, <laughs> but no, we've got a lot of uh, millennials in the office that just roll their eyes at anyone that happened to buy a house that. You know, it's for eighty thousand dollars or something, and and uh, they can't see any way in sight to get into the property market. I think it makes them extremely anxious, to be honest, yeah. uh, and it's an anxiety that will last a lot longer because property prices, while they might be cooling, they're not going like you know they're not going to fall off a cliff. I don't think. So I do think that this problem is around to stay. Whereas, as you guys were. Um, referring to those interest rates were extremely high, but they weren't high for a sustained period of time. Yeah, and I think that's one of the differences. It was certainly tough in 1990, 91, but they came down quickly too. So, uh, but Paul, you remember why? Unemployment went to 10.4% yeah, well, well, we as well. We also had a huge ch- challenge in the commercial property market and a lot of companies failed. So yeah. it was the recession we had yeah, to have, and we home. certainly had a recession. Um, yeah. And, but it did finish quickly. <laughs> it sure did. It sure did. Okay, so Sally, thanks for joining us on the program. That's very insightful. If people want to go and see more, what's the website they should go to? That's ratecity.com.au. Okay, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Okay, we're back, and coming up now is a little interview we're going to do with a guy called Tim Lawless, who's head of research at CoreLogic. And when I want to talk about house prices, what they're doing now, and what they'll do in the future, Tim is the right man to talk to. Thanks for joining us on the program, mate. Pleasure, Peter. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, house prices, we're hearing that uh, they're coming off the boil, but the numbers I saw last week, 
didn't look all that scary. So let's talk about the current numbers we're seeing. And I will later talk to you what do you think is going to happen over the course of this year and next. And you've got here CoreLogic Home Value Index of Capital City Home Prices fell by 0.2% in May to stand 1.1% lower over the year. And that doesn't seem too scary. So why don't you talk us through what that number is and what it means. Sure, and, and you're exactly right. The, the market is slowing down. Our values are trending a little bit lower. But the rate of decline is actually pretty mellow. In fact, uh, if you look at the previous downturns we've been through um, across Australia, across the capital cities, uh, the most recent major downturn, of course, was between 2010 and 2012, we're actually seeing dwelling values falling at a much more rapid rate. And of course, that was when interest rates were rising. What we're seeing at the moment in the housing market, you could probably describe as, as a fairly managed slowdown. This is very much credit related rather than uh, uh, monetary policy related. So we are seeing Sydney values, they're, they're still falling. They have been since July last year. Uh, they were down 0.2% over the month. And uh, since uh, uh, the last 12 months, they're down now by 4.2%. Remember, this is after values in Sydney rose by about 70% over the past five years. So it is a fairly mellow fall regarding uh, um, the most recent indicators, but that comes after a fairly long run of, of strong capital gains. So to put this in perspective then, Sydney, for example, has gone through a price rise of 70% over five years. And over the last year, what uh, has the prices fallen by? By 4%, a little bit more than 4.2% 4, 4 mm. um, in Melbourne. Fairly similar rate of capital gain in the run-up. Mm. And values are still actually 2.2% higher over the past 12 months. But it does look like the rate of decline is just starting to gather a little bit of momentum in Melbourne with values down 1.2% over the three months ending May. That was actually the weakest result of any of the capital cities. Tim, it's, uh, it's Paul Rickard here. I mentioned some anecdote earlier about a couple of mates of mine trying to sell their properties in Sydney and both reporting uh, in one case that they'd had, uh, their, their property been on the market now for some weeks and hadn't had an offer and the second case had only had one offer and, and still some way below the asking price. I seem to be getting more of that anecdote, but your figures sort of say that the, the, order, the decline is pretty orderly. Um, do they sort of by any means, because of the way this gets reported, um, is it just a little bit – does the data perhaps smooth what's going on out there, or do you really think it's, uh, this is the case that it is just a pretty orderly decline and the anecdote is uh, you know, a bit like in, in, in bull markets, sometimes people exaggerate how strong it is. It's just anecdote and we should discount that. It's actually really different from, from segment to segment in the market. And if you look at our data and you break it down by, say, you break the market down into the 10 even segments or, or, or deciles, mm -hmm. you can see that it's the, the most expensive end of the market where most of the prices are actually falling. Uh, the more affordable end of the market is actually still seeing some very subtle levels of growth. That's right. largely being fueled by first home buyers coming back into the market. You know, it was a year ago, we're about July last year, we saw first home buyers were only about 7% of mortgage demand across New South Wales. That's pretty much doubled, uh, or more than doubled, to 15% as first home buyers come back into the market, taking advantage of the stamp duty concessions that went live in July last year. We're also seeing houses a little bit weaker than apartment markets, which is a little bit surprising mm. when you consider how many new apartments have been built 
But once again, I think we're seeing this natural transition of demand coming back into markets um, where the price points are a little bit lower, which includes apartments. Mm. Uh, and we're seeing that the most pain in the marketplace generally around what you might describe as the blue chip suburbs, your eastern uh, suburbs, your lower north shore, your inner west, mm-hmm. those, those sort of markets. Yeah, you can, you can understand that all Paul's friends are very rich and that's why they're suffering <laughs> out there. We, we feel sorry for Paul and his very rich friends. Uh, I think that goes to a good point though because yeah, we, do, we do talk about it as though it's one market and not only is it different obviously between Sydney and Melbourne and Melbourne and Brisbane, but it's very different in different suburbs and between houses and units. So I think your point you're making is interesting, Tim, at the bottom end of the market is actually going up, I think is what you're saying. And uh, We're still seeing some upwards pressure at the bottom end, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing, we were just talking to uh, Sally Tyndall from Rate City, and they did a bit of a comparison of what was it like to you know, pay 17% home loan interest rates compared to, you know, in the 80s, compared to the 4.5% now. Uh, and and she, she was using the comparison of, you know, we were talking about the young people in Sydney and Melbourne having to pay at least a million dollars to get into a home. But this is why you, you'd understand it better than us, uh, Tim. A lot of young people really don't want the million dollar home. They're quite happy to be in maybe five to seven hundred thousand dollar apartments, particularly in the in the early stages of their their working life. Yeah, I think it comes back to what what younger people are willing to sacrifice, and more and more we are seeing uh, younger age groups and and even young families sacrificing the hills hoist in the backyard and then moving into medium density or, or high density accommodation simply because. It gives them a better lifestyle opportunity. They don't have to spend as much time commuting from the outer suburbs where, where properties are generally more affordable. You know, if you put it to a young family, do, do, would you prefer to live out towards the Blue Mountains or the Central Coast and drive into the CBD or would you prefer to buy a townhouse within, say, seven or eight kilometres of the city? A lot of them are going to put their hands up and say, let's, let's take the townhome or, or the apartment. Mm and save ourselves um, a lot of time on the road and uh, time away from the young family. Yeah, I call it the Manhattanization of Australia, which I think is also being helped by Airbnb because a lot of young people live at the apartment life during the week and they get away on the weekends to places like the Blue Mountains or the Central Coast. Yeah, it makes sense. And we're also seeing this growing trend of rent vesting where, where younger people are either staying at home with mum and dad and getting into the housing market via investment or they're continuing to rent in areas where they generally prefer to live, and they'll buy into the housing market, potentially interstate or uh, or somewhere else that's more affordable than Sydney. Uh, at least that way, they've they've still got their uh, their money working for them. Hopefully, they're they're building up some equity uh, uh, in in their investment. But at the same time, they can still uh, live close to where they, they grew up, maybe, or close to their family and friends, and hopefully close to where they're working as well. What about Hobart? Like. Paul and I can't believe. Like, it's a great place. Well, we, we can. It's I a mean, great place, but 12.7%. Yeah. What's going on there, mate? It's, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? You've got to remember, Hobart was a really soft market up until a couple of years ago. Uh, pretty much since, since 2008, the market really hadn't done much at all. So it's very affordable, even with, with values up uh, seemingly 13% the past 12 months. The typical house price in Hobart is still about $450,000, so less than half of what it is in Sydney. So I think part of what's driving Hobart is, is just the sheer affordability. But you've also got the fact that you know migration's picked up into Hobart, particularly from interstate. Tourism's really picked up. We've seen the economy improving. 
uh, rental rates are rising almost as fast as what dwelling values are. So that means the rental yield is actually really strong, which is quite appealing to investors as well. So while it may be a very small capital city, there's plenty of other regional markets that are actually bigger than Hobart, uh, it does seem to have some pretty decent growth drivers at the moment. It probably won't be able to be you know, sustain that level of really strong capital gains, you'll find that that simply does erode. It's it's affordability proposition and, and people just, just overlook it because it does become more expensive. And Tim, there's been a lot of talk about the apartments. You mentioned before that, uh, if anything, the apartment market has held up okay. What about Brisbane and the apartments up there? Well, Brisbane's certainly an exception. The, the apartment market's been, uh, been pretty dismal uh, the last five years. Of course, that's very much supply related. We have seen a lot of new supply coming to the Brisbane apartment market. Uh, importantly, though, the supply or construction activity peaked about two years ago. So we have seen a real slowdown in how many uh, new apartments are coming into the market now in Brisbane. So a lot of that stock has been absorbed. Uh, we're still seeing values drifting a little bit lower across the apartment market in Brisbane. And interestingly enough, when you look at the long-term trends in Brisbane apartments, values are still nearly 12% lower than what they were 10 years ago uh, on average. So there are some good bargains to be had. Generally, yields aren't too bad, but you, you probably want to be a little bit cautious of, uh, of vacancy rates, which are a little bit higher across the Brisbane area, and uh, also uh, a bit wary of some of the high-rise investment-grade stock where that's been a large part and, of the new and, stock edition. And year-to-date, what's the market showing for Brisbane apartments? Uh, the Brisbane apartment market. Yeah. So over the past 12 months, it's it's down about 0.3 uh, percent. Um, the past 12 months, so it looks like it's starting to level out. Yeah. So maybe a bit of bottom coming term. in. That is that what you're uh, su- suggesting? Yeah, I think it's probably pretty close to bottoming out. But remember, prices are still about 12 percent lower than what they were 10 years ago. Yeah. So for anybody who's bought into the marketplace, they probably do have some negative equity. But for, for recent buyers or people looking to buy into that marketplace, you can still negotiate pretty hard and uh, and get a, a relative bargain. Yeah, okay, mate. Well, look, thanks for joining us. As always, very informative. If people want to know more, what's the best website to go to? Uh, just go to the CoreLogic uh, website, www.corelogic.com.au. That's where all our research gets updated. Okay, mate. Just make sure you don't allow those house prices to fall too quickly. You know, I, I, I own a bit of property. You know, I, I don't want my assets to go off the boil. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, do best. Okay, mate. That's Tim Laws, head of research at CoreLogic. Very interesting, Paul, isn't it, the, the way that the, he's saying that the downturn is quite manageable. It's probably because a lot of downturns do happen with rising interest rates and challenges for the job market, and the opposite's happening now, isn't it? Interest rates are steady, and the job market's getting stronger. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, Peter, when uh, the, the market sort of took off, we were saying, and a lot of people calling you know, the usual doom and gloom predictor yeah. saying there was going to be a crash, you said, well... What could cause the crash? The two most likely things are higher interest rates and higher unemployment. Mm. We haven't had higher interest rates. Interest rates are still low. Mm. We're getting a little bit of tightening about the lending criteria, but that's all that's happened. And we're certainly the jobs market is really strong. So to be out there sort of calling for a crash as a lot of the doom and doomsters want to do, yeah. um, it, the, the data or the evidence is not there. Yeah. So, But we are now getting just a cyclical downturn after a very strong market. And typically that's what happens. Markets go up for five years and then they go quiet for a couple yeah. of years. I think that's what we're seeing. And it's interesting that, if anything, the thing that I found interesting from, uh, 
from what Tim had to say was actually that the apartment market is actually doing a bit better, and that's just the affordability issue mm. coming into play. And, and what I find also interesting is he pointed out that in Sydney, prices rose 70% over five years. So really, it could drop back 10 or even 15%, and on a five-year basis, you'd be still looking at 11% per, per annum growth, wouldn't you? So let's, let's be very careful here when we start talking about you know, scary house price falls. All right, so let's go to an ad break now, and uh, we'll come back, and Paul and I will answer a few of your listener questions. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Welcome back to Switzer and uh, that guy and his teeth. I'm really worried about that guy, Paul. He's continually worrying about where his teeth is. I don't think I ever helped that guy get rich. Let's go to some view. Uh, sorry, listener questions. I'm getting mixed up between TV and radio. Alan has sent a question from email. He says, "What does one do if a stockbroker writes a written guarantee on the shares, then doesn't honour it when they fall to almost zero? I can't say, Peter. I've ever heard of a stockbroker writing a written guarantee, no. but let's assume that uh, this has happened. I mean, uh, well, I mean." I- Obviously, I, I suppose that uh, you could sue the stockbroker, but look, um, I, I guess the stockbroker has probably gone has gone too far here mm. because brokers can only give you an opinion, yeah. and maybe th- I'd be very surprised someone gives you a guarantee. But uh, I mean, I would never offer a client a guarantee. You can't control what goes on in the market. No. You can provide an opinion. So, look, I, I, I think if you've got that sort of something like that, you could probably look at suing them, but. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what other remedies you've got apart from. Um, just I, think, I think you're absolutely ones. right, Paul. It's a clear-cut case that a broker should never give a guarantee. But if he or she did, they have to honour it, and it's a, a matter of um, going to a lawyer. And I know friends of mine have taken a, a pretty big uh, brokerage to um, to court, and um, they won. Well, they actually settled before the case actually got started because they knew they were in the wrong. Let's go to another one here, Paul. Maria from Armadale. She says, is it a good idea to start a super fund for my 18-year-old grandchild who's not yet working? I've been told we can start adding deposits in of $25 per week. Yeah, look, I'd like to say yes, but I'm going to say no for a couple of reasons. Um, Not because I'm not uh, keen for parents or grandparents to support their their children or Mm. grandchildren. But I don't think I'd be putting into super. Uh, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, she's he or she's eighteen, and uh, currently they can't access this super till they're sixty. By the time your eighteen-year-old gets to that sort of age, it's probably more like seventy. Yeah. So the money's going to be locked away in super for the next probably fifty years before they can access it. So, time they get to access it, they won't probably will unfortunately have forgotten you. 
I think you're... <laughs> you're a hard well, man. Well, no, but I mean, the point I'm making is I think your grandchild would probably more appreciate to be able to use it for something like as a deposit for a home. Yeah. And you probably don't want them to go and spend it, but you want them to use it for a good purpose, deposit for a home, buy mm. a car, whatever it is. I think there might be some more tax-effective ways for, for you to save for him or her. So obviously you could put it in a bank account. That's a bit boring. But, boring. But uh, what you could do is perhaps look at uh, if, if, if it was at least a 10-year horizon, look at things like an insurance bond. Um, but even so, maybe you could buy them some, some shares. $25 a week is a hard way to save too. You probably want to get that into mm. a decent size amount so you avoid any transaction costs. I'd, I'd probably be looking at uh, an insurance bond for 10 Me years. Too. Um, and that'll be time that they'll be 28, and they may be able to use that money. Yeah, that explain age. to our listeners how an insurance bond works, and in particular, you can get dial it up, Paul. Can't you? Yeah, you, you get can... more risk in there, so you get stock market benefits. Yeah, they're actually it's a bad name. They're called an insurance bond yeah. because they're issued by life insurance companies, and that's why they're called an insurance bond. Apart from that, it's really got nothing to do with insurance whatsoever. No. But that's why it's called an insurance bond. Sometimes other people call them an investment bond. They're what are called tax-paid investments. So what that means is that the invest, the person managing the money for you actually pays tax on the investment at the company tax rate. And it means if you hang on to the insurance bond for 10 years, you've got absolutely no tax things to worry about. Mm. And nor does the person that might end up with the insurance bond. So if you buy this for your grandchild mm. and providing that the bond is untouched for 10 years, you won't have to worry about any tax issues from your point of view, and nor will your grandchild when they actually take the bond over in ten years' time. Yeah. So it's actually it's a tax paid investment. The the, the investor the person managing the the bond pays the tax for you, providing you hold it for ten years. They're issued by most of the big large life insurance companies. People like uh, I was going to say AMP, but uh, not a bit of a dirty word these days. <laughs> but AMP, IOOF, Centuria issue insurance bonds. Uh, they're a great way to save for somebody else, providing you can hang on them for 10 and, years. And, and, you, and you can control the, the type of things that invest in. That's you right. Can, so you can be conservative or if you want a bit more risk, so exposure to the stock market. So you might get that 8 to 10% gain per annum over a 10-year period. It could be a great way of really boosting up the, um, the, the nest egg. Yep. Okay. I'd, great answer. Danny from Maroubra says, I'm 19 years of age. I have 30 grand of inheritance coming up next year. Should I put it into the first home super saver scheme? Well, this is one of these great schemes that uh, the government's introduced mm. that I've described as a, as a no-brainer mm. for young people. Um, only as a way because it helps you it just accelerate the saving. It's much easier to save through super than it is outside super. Mm. And you're allowed to access up to $30,000. Now, um, you can't put 30000 Well, you can, but you'll need to do it over two years. Because 25 is the max, no, it's, it? it's a maximum of $15,000 uh, in any one year. Over and above salary no, no, sacrifice? No, it's part of your $25,000 yeah, okay. super cap, but yep. you can only put a $15,000 per year uh, okay. in, into the scheme and then a maximum of $30,000 in total. So if you had 30000 you have to break it up. Uh, and all of this is you'll save about 30% faster than if you try to do it outside super. So it's, it's called the First Homeowner Super Saver Scheme. Mm. Uh, it's a government initiative. It started last or about six months ago. There's a website. If you look Google First Home Super Saver Scheme, 
and that explains uh, how it works. And so, I guess if, if say Danny's nineteen, let's imagine he's a university student and he's maybe doing some part-time work. Now, if his boss only puts in say two or three grand um, super, he'd still have twenty-seven thousand dollars left, wouldn't he, Paul, on that cap? Well, the cap's twenty. Yeah, the cap's twenty-five. So, so he'd have twenty-two thousand. Twenty-two thousand. Just getting picking you up on your. No, no, my maths was bad. Thanks for asking. <laughs> okay. you're, that's yeah. why you're the technical yeah. guru. So he still have twenty-two thousand dollars. So yeah. potentially of that fifteen and fifteen thousand that could go towards through the first home super saver. Yeah. And if he still had, had some money left, he could put the rest into super as well. But yeah. it just won't, the only, only 15000 will count as part of that scheme. Okay, good stuff. Now, Susan from Adelaide, I'm considering making an extra super contribution so that I can claim back the tax under these new budget rules. However, I'm told that if I don't do it right, I might not be able to make the claim and I'll just lose that chunk of cash. Is there anything I need to be aware of or make sure I do beforehand? Well, I think what Susan's referring to is that uh, one of the, the really good changes that's come in this year is that anyone can now make a contribution to super and claim a tax deduction. Now, yeah. when I say anyone, it's subject to two really important caveats. First of all, it's part of your $25,000 cap. Yeah. So uh, we talk about this concessional cap, and that includes your employer's 9.5% plus any amount you salary sacrifice. And if after you add those two amounts together, if there's something left over, then potentially you could put the rest in up to $25,000 and, uh, and get a tax deduction. So let's just run through that, make the math a little yeah, easier. Yeah. For round numbers, I'll just assume you earn $100,000 because everyone knows that 9.5% of $100,000 is $9,500. Mm, yeah. Well, most of us yeah, do. Most of us do. Let's assume your salary sacrifice in addition another $10,000. Yep. That's $9,500. Potentially, you could put, if you had the cash lying around at home, mm. you could put another up to $5,500 into super and claim a tax deduction. Mm. And that's an important mm. change that's come in this year. And I think that's what Susan's referring to. Yep. The second caveat is if you do that, you do need to notify your your super fund that you're proposing to claim a tax deduction on that $5,500. How do you do that, Paul? And there is a standard form available on the tax office website, but most of the super funds will probably also have a form or somewhere online you go to. Hmm. But you do need to tell them uh, – you don't have to do it until till actually the next tax year, but you do need to do them – when it, by the time you actually lodge your tax return – you have to tell, tell them that you're actually going to claim a tax deduction for okay, it. Okay, now some people... That's be, probably, I think, what Susan's referring yeah, and to. Some Pete. people out there will be wondering, well, how does the tax deduction actually work? Like, I put the money in, what is the actual tax deduction? Well, the tax deduction for you personally. Yeah. So if you're earning... Um, I'm earning $100,000. Yeah, right? so let's assume you're earning $100,000. You, you pay tax on those top dollars at about uh, uh, 38 39 percent yep okay and instead of paying tax at 39 so if you put ten thousand dollars into that. into super mm. you'd only pay tax on the ninety thousand dollars and so you get about a three thousand nine hundred dollar tax deduction yeah and that's okay. exactly what people would want to yep. know so I, that's that's how it works and of course it's going to be the, the more you're earning the higher the rate of tax you're paying then the more attractive it's going mm. to be. But it is a bit of a no-brainer, uh, and again, it's a, good, it's a good little... If you've got the cash, that is. Yep. You know, got the, you know, the downside, of course, putting money into super is once it goes in, yep. you're not going to be get it out until you're at least 60. So you've got to be able to have 
The cash flow to substantiate this to, to follow on. One final one, Paul. Mike from Redfern in New South Wales. I'm in my mid-50s and I'm very late starter when it comes to paying attention to my financial situation due to past spiritual reasons. I've only 70000 in my super and I plan to continue working into my mid-60s. Is it too late to start taking steps towards building my super and establishing some kind of financial security? What steps can I take? Well, I might even throw this one to you, Peter. I mean, you say it's never too late to start putting money into super, no. providing you've got the cash flow, right? Yeah. So he's got seventy grand. Uh, we don't know how much money he's earning each year, but let's hope he can go to the maximum, twenty-five mm. k, in, in his mid fifties. Let's say he's got. 15 years to work because he must go to 70, all right? So he's got 15 times 25. Come on, Paul, help me with the math. So that's, so that's 225,000. Right, 225,000. Yep. Um, if he's in a good super fund, like some of the top 10 that you'd find on superratings.com.au or, or Chant West, uh, he could probably work on the idea of an 8% return. Mm -hmm. That means his, his money could double in... Well, no. yeah, I, I could see him, if he really saved hard and he was in a good super fund, he might be able to push his total balance up to nearly half a million dollars. Yeah, now that's, of course, in 15 years' time. So, yeah. But, you know, it's going to be... Uh it's going to be better. He'll probably still get access to the full pension or close to the full pension. That's what I was going to say. And he'll be able to live off... The super will be able to supplement that. So yeah. I think... Uh, Mike, if you've got access to the cash flow, it's never too late to put money into super. Yeah. The only reason it's ever late is if you can actually invest better outside super, and that's only if you can access what we call the tax-free threshold. Yeah. And that's the only reason why you wouldn't put money into super, but uh, apart from having it tied and, up. And, but and Paul, I'd throw this one as well. If he puts the 25000 cap in, and given he, he's had difficulties... I'd be trying to get a weekend job, you know, maybe work, walking in a, yep. in a pub or a restaurant and trying to get maybe an extra 200 bucks, which he throws into super as a non-concessional contribution. He could really get, get pushed up towards probably $750,000 if he was really, really committed to doing it. And it would take a commitment, but obviously he wants to try and play catch-up, and that's the way you could do it. Yep, I think that's good advice, Peter. I think, look, uh, mm. Mike, let's get started. Get started soon, and uh, you're going to be much better, more feel much more comfortable that's when you right. finally get to retire. And you'll feel spiritually um, well-paid. Spiritually, yeah. Well, spiritually and financially well-paid. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us, Paul. As always, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Sounds like we're ringing the bell here. It's quitting time for the Switzer Show. And we'll see you all next week.